a genius. Oh, that is a brilliant goal. Well, the evening started with a superb strike from Bentley. It has ended with an equally impressive shot by Genus. Trying to thread one through for Billy Sharp. It's blocked, it comes back to him. Then he threads one through for Genus. Inside right channel, through on goal, and digs it into the net. And Jermaine Genus has made it 4-1. Our Ramble Meets guest today was the second most expensive teenager in British football, was the PFA Young Player of the Year, played under the legendary Sir Bobby Robson at Newcastle, won the League Cup at Tottenham, played for England and went to the World Cup in Germany. And since then, he's carved out a media role which goes beyond punditry and co-commentating and into mainstream presentation, anchoring magazine shows and hard-hitting documentaries on knife crime and police stop and search. So our Ramble Meets guest, hello, Jermaine Genus. JJ, how are you? How you doing, Pugas? That was very nice. That was a lovely intro. Thank you very much. Well, I think it shows the breadth of what you did when you were playing yeah. and of course since you've retired now is that your pfa award over your right shoulder uh yes it is actually yeah. oh, good. My, my young play of the year award sits pride of place in the office yeah it's uh that was obviously a big moment for me in my career and actually it was a big big moment for newcastle that whole year we got to the champions league um we qualified for the champions league i think bobby got uh some form of like recognition at the pfa awards as well for his obviously services to the sport and i picked up Young Player of the Year, and it was, it was great. We had a big table, and you know, all kinds of people. Like we had AP McCoy on the table and stuff as well. It was uh, a really special night. So, yeah, sits pride of place in the office. That quite, quite right too. It's interesting, JJ, because I think in the media, so I'm as guilty as anybody. We're all obsessed about what you won. What, what medal did you win? Yeah. What, you know, what did you win as a team? And yet, I wonder. It sounds as if an individual award, although you would never put it above a team award, an individual award can mean just as much. I think. Um, where the PFA awards mean just as much or if not more is because it's voted by the players. It's voted for by your peers and it doesn't get any more special. I don't think for a footballer to get recognition from the players that they're playing against on a week in week out basis. It's okay. You know, journalists and obviously winning, winning, uh, you know, trophies as a team has a different special uh, bond about it, but you know, to be recognized by your fellow pros as the best, you know, best young player or the best player that year it's a different feeling, you know, it's, it, you know, it's the people that are out there with you week in, week out competing. So, yeah, it, it is special. Well, look, you've teamed up with Haycar, the official sponsor of the FA Cup coverage on BT Sport. So you've got an FA Cup series of content this season, speaking to fans about their cup memories and sharing your own as well. And in this season, of course, which has been horrible for fans, what stood out to you about their stories, especially with no one in the grounds this year? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I suppose all, all the fans are amazing. I mean, I spoke to um, a guy called Reese in particular, who uh, is a big Portsmouth fan. Um, and their, their passion, Pug, is always... I mean, it never surprises me. It never surprised me, the fans' passion. Actually, their dedication in terms of going to the games and they kind of... Um, they talked me through their whole story of kind of from the morning, getting up, having breakfast with their, you know, with their dad. I think his granddad, uh, I think it's his like his last trip that his granddad had to Wembley as well. You know, going to the, you know, that cup final, they beat, I think they beat Cardiff, didn't they, in the final. Uh, but the whole experience of it and gaining some insight as to kind of when they get on the coach or if they're driving and, you know, just the banter between uh, opposing fans at the game and so on. And it just made me realise just how much we're missing fans. I think the players have been incredible in terms of maintaining the standard of football without fans. I really do. Um, but having spoke to them and their experiences, is it was a, a real kind of, 
shining light on just the individual stories and not so much the mass nature to fans, but the individualisms of like what people are missing out on, the memories they're missing out on on a day-to-day basis. So I, you know, we're going to have fans back in the stadium, aren't we, for the semi-finals, uh, which is amazing for anybody that's going to be able to kind of get those get those tickets so I think Haycar's involvement within it all and their ability to you know to give back to the fans that have been able to miss that have missed out uh, has been a, a huge huge plus for the fans Looking through your, your life really you came into the orbit of two legendary English football men one you've mentioned Bobby Robson we'll get to in a second who you know very well the other I'm wondering if you knew at all but you grew up in I'm going inverted commas here his city yeah, yeah. Brian Clough yeah, exactly, how much yeah. were you aware of I mean so you're born in 1983 so you were 10 when Cluffy retired how much were you really aware of his impact and what he'd done for Nottingham the city and Nottingham Forest oh, you know what when you are at Nottingham Forest as a kid I was there from the age of I think eight years old and it's just drilled into you you know there is a there's a Nottingham Forest way of playing football uh, at their centre of excellence at the time which is obviously now the academy and then also there was the uh, becoming a man almost that I think Cluffy had imprinted on the football club and how to carry yourself in and around the football club and off the field as well. And, um, you know, I was there, I mean, I was at the game actually when we got, when they got relegated, I think it was one of his last games. We, we got to play on the pitch at half time for my school. And, um, and after the game, it was obviously a bit of a sad affair because last game of the season, he gets sacked and stuff, but he was always in and around the building. So um, I've got a lovely picture of when I, in my first year as an apprentice and Cluffy was just kind of walking around. I, I don't know if he was filming some documentary or whatever. And I was cleaning boots by the pitch and, um, and someone kind of stopped him and said, oh, he's, you know, trust me, it's worth having a picture with him. And he stopped, he put his arm around me. We had a good chat. And um, yeah, it's, it's a picture that, you know, I, I really enjoy because, of his just, you know, the, the, the synergy that Brian Clough uh, has at Nottingham Forest is huge. And actually, just quickly on that, when I was at school, Clough, he used, he used to have a, a corner shop that I think he owned, like not far from my school. So at dinner breaks, you we would like go to the chippy or whatever, but then we'd go into the, the local corner shop to get a drink. And he used to sit behind the counter just reading the paper. And it's like, God, this guy's like, he's won two European Cups. He's a Forest legend, you know, and he just sits behind the counter. I think he just used to read the post and just go through stuff and he'd keep an eye on you and go behave yourselves. And that was it. It was, it was incredible. The man with the green sweater. An embrace for the law on his last home appearance. Whatever his failings, whatever his foibles, He's been a power of good to the game of football. An emotional welcome from a packed city ground. He doesn't look to be too far away from tears. I often think in life you can't regret things you have no control over. Yeah. So maybe you feel it's just a shame you couldn't have played for him. You weren't old enough to play oh, yeah. for him, really. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there was... Yeah, you know, I, I just think there's something about those managers around that era that really had the ability to, um, you know, to mould you not only as a player but as a man. And I know when I kind of listen to Roy Keane talk about him, it, it's um, you can see the influence of, of the you know Brian Clough had on Roy. And actually, like when I left Forest, um, 
there were three bids that came in for me at the time. One of them was United, but Sir Alex said he wouldn't go above and beyond for, you know, it's a privilege to play for the club. Um, and obviously there was Leeds and Newcastle, but, you know, United, I knew I wasn't going to play, but there's a big part of me when I look back now that thinks, God, I wish I'd have maybe given that a go just to be around someone like Roy as a player who maybe would have understood that transfer from Forest and, you know, probably been harsh on me, don't get me wrong, but maybe it's like, you know, it's the Forest way, it's what I maybe would have needed, but like you said, hindsight and so on and so forth. But in turn, I still went to go and play for another great in, in Sir Bobby. Well, I was about to say, and that must have been, will you, will you talk us through Sir Bobby as the football tactician, Jermaine? Because yeah. I think it's a bit easy on the outside to look at Sir Bobby as paternal and lovely and mm. cuddly. And, you know, particularly if you look at Italia 90, the players ran the team and changed the system, which they all deny, by the yeah. way, don't yeah, they? Yeah, they yeah, did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Will, you, will you talk us through Sir Bobby as much more than just the lovely figure that we saw on the telly? Yeah, I think... Um... One of the big things that always comes back to me now with Bobby was um, if you ever overcomplicated things, he used to go crazy. He used to hate it. He used to always come with this phrase, simplicity is genius. He used to just ram it down your throat. It'd just be like the game's simple. Stop complicating it. And don't get me wrong, from a tactical point of view, like I don't specifically remember like us going into many games where it was like, right, I've got a master plan here and we're going to do this, this and this. It was just very much do your job. Your, your job today, Jermaine, is get forward. When Gary Speed doesn't go, you stay and, and vice versa. And on the wings, he used to go, you know, Lauren Rebeer, uh, Nobby Solano, get up, get those crosses in, get back, tuck in. It was, you know, it, it made the game easy. And I do think sometimes, you know, don't get me wrong, we have genius managers now that play, you know, the game's played so different. Um, but I remember kind of making my transition from Newcastle to, uh, to a new manager and then coming to Tottenham. And I was all of a sudden playing in a three in midfield where Carrick sat a bit deeper. David was off the left. I was the right in midfield, but then I had Lennon right next to me. And I was like, it took me forever to figure it out. It was so complicated. And then, you know, you just realised that there was genius in everything that Bobby did was just the, 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 the simplistic nature of it all. And actually knowing how to get the best players on the pitch to do the job. And that, I think, from a tactical point of view, was, was, was where he was very good. Is that not the, the way that it was in the 80s and 90s? We mentioned Brian Clough, Bobby Robson, Arsene Wenger, Alex Ferguson, who are not the micro-managers, which clearly Pep Guardiola, Tuchel obviously is, Klopp obviously yeah. is, and I suspect Mourinho is, stroke was, someone else can say that, <laughs> or Arteta wants to be. That is a big contrast, yeah. isn't it? They're, they're the sort of more broader picture that you play in under. Today, they're very micromanagers. Yeah, they are. They are. And you know what? In a weird way, I think Bobby, if anything, he probably came a little bit more under the micromanagers from a, a person point of view, not from a tactical point of view, where you know, the details of where and when. You know, I, when I played under Andre Villas-Boas, who was you know, a, a Mourinho disciple, I just was very frustrated a lot of the time playing because it was, you know, he would micromanage you to the point where, you know, I'd get the ball in midfield and you'd go, Jermaine, don't stand there. And he'd move you like a metre to the left. And I'd be like, you know, I've, I've played here my whole life and I know where I like to receive the ball and where I feel comfortable. And I get it. That is their way of doing things. And they've been successful managers in doing that. Um, 
but yeah, I think a lot of the, the the old school managers, they put their trust in players and they kind of said, listen, I know you're a good player. They give you the belief to go out there and perform and then basically just work within the framework of all that. That's the word. You said it, JJ. That's the word. Trust, isn't it? Trust. Yeah, it is. You know what it you is. Know. It's huge. Yeah. yeah. I mean, honestly, Boogers, when I went to Newcastle, I had two weeks of the worst training you've ever <laughs> seen in your life. I, I had this massive price tag on my head. I felt, I thought I was confident. And then I was just, you know, in training, I couldn't, I couldn't control the ball. And then my, our first game was Sunderland away. We trained on the Thursday at St. James's Park and Bobby walked up to me and was just like, by the way, you're going to be starting on Saturday. So just get your head around it. And I just thought, what have you been watching for the last two weeks? Because yeah. I've been absolutely <laughs> shocking. But that was it. He had full trust in me. If, if we, I've, I've thought about this a lot, and we have talked about this a lot on all the shows you and I do and everybody else. If you could land a sort of 1996 Arsene Wenger ahead of his time with the money today of anybody at St. James's Park, what could Newcastle United be in terms of a football club? What, if they had someone they, like Arsene Wenger? If they had a Wenger from the mid-90s, a bit of a revolutionary, oh. and they had them, you know, frankly, money was limitless. What could they oh, be? Oh, my word. I mean, I, I think people tend to forget what Arsene Wenger did in terms of um, the game in, in England. You know, I played against a lot of his best teams, and they are still some of the best teams that have ever, you know, graced the Premier League. Um, his, his kind of mindset and culture of, of, of tactically playing as well, by the way, you know, not playing with you know, natural wingers all the time, played with inverted wingers, you know, the way they moved was, and athletically, they were just a different breed. If they had somebody like him, you know, it was, he, he, he then was what Guardiola is now, essentially. That is exactly what everybody wanted to play for him. Everybody was thinking, God, what would it be like? How does he do it? Um, so if Newcastle managed to get something like that, with the the money, I, all I can say is it's exa- it's what they deserve. You know, I I feel like they've been through kind of like ten years of of hell really, and that's not a jab at the managers because I think the managers that have gone in there have done a really good job and done the best they can with what they've got. But they need you know they need some flair up there. They need some you know the, the place is full of passion. If they had that boogers, you know it, it, you know we're talking league league titles in terms of um you know the Keegan era where they were chasing league titles again. Because those Champions League nights, don't forget, you played the Champions League at Newcastle. Yeah. The, at St James's Park must have been oh. as good a night's atmosphere-wise as you ever played in. You know what? You know, sometimes when I sit and do match of the day with, with, with Alan Shearer, we sit and talk about those Champions League nights. And, you know, I think one of my, my first game was in the San Siro and we drew 3 all against an Inter-Land side that had Zanetti and Christian Vieri and Cordoba and all these world-class players in it. And the, the San Siro was full. It was packed. And I think like 10,000 Geordies came. And, you know, we, we just had the time of our lives in that tournament. You know, it was 3 all. We obviously had that, that famous game in Feyenoord where we, uh, where we came back last minute to, to qualify. And, you know, beating Juventus at St. James's Park was just like, you know, that team was full of World Cup winners and stars. David, Nedved, Taram, Buffon. And, you know, they're nice what I think the club deserves. And, you know, for them not to, to have that for a long period of time, it'd be like me telling you, Pugas, well, you know, well, actually, it's kind of what Arsenal are going through now to an extent, really. You know, Arsenal fans have been so used to European football and now they probably appreciate just how good Arsene Wenger was. Um, 
talked about your your young player award over your shoulder. Your your team medal, as it were, came at Tottenham and the League yeah. Cup, and that was a really special run, wasn't it? Because you hammered Arsenal, which means everything, and you scored in both legs in the semi, and then you beat yeah, Chelsea, yeah. who were you know along with Man United, the team of the the team of the decade, really, weren't they? So that that very special. Yeah, I think that's what people underestimate. You know, underestimate. I think sometimes the trophy kind of gets belittled a little bit. But if you have actually look at the last. You know, probably five, six winners of it in in England. I mean, Man City, I think, have won four of them. They're not easy to come and get, you know, otherwise everyone would have one. And I think in particular, you know, our Tottenham team is very similar to this Tottenham team now. They were full of players that were, were good, that were going to go on and do more, but were desperate to, to win something as a group of players. We had Berbatov, Keane, a very young Bale was in the side. Ledley King, Jonathan Woodgate, you know, really good players. And... We went to Man City, went down to 10 men in the first half and beat them uh, in the quarterfinals. Then we beat Arsenal over two legs of a, you know, a constant Champions League side. And then when we come up against Chelsea, we're all thinking, oh, they're going to rest a few in the final. It was Terry, Lampard, Drogba through the middle, SCN. It was their team. And I thought, oh my word. And then they go 1-0 up and we come back and you obviously win it in extra time, which was, oh, honestly, like for Tottenham, for it to be their last trophy that they've won, tells you everything about how difficult it was, it was to get over the line. Woodgate going in as well! Tottenham take the lead in the first seconds of extra time! And it's Jonathan Woodgate! Tottenham Hotspur have won their first major trophy for nine years! Jonathan Woodgate, the hero! His goal in the first seconds of extra time! The holders relinquish their trophy. Well, I was going to say, if I'd said to you at the bottom of the steps at Wembley, by the way, Tottenham won't win another trophy for a minimum 13 years, you'd look at me and go, A, leave me to celebrate, but B, don't be stupid. There's Tottenham's, Tottenham's set up to win, especially now oh, with the ground. 100%. And you know what? I think the one thing that I realised about winning um, is the minute you win something you get a, a, a feeling of, I want to win more straight away. It's like a drug. It's like, oh, I need to win more. And we got to the final the next year as well against United. And we absolutely battered United and they, they beat us on penalties. But for us to go, for Tottenham to go so long and not have won anything with the teams they've had and the way that you know, the stadium, the way that the, the, the thing is built now is it, it's bad. It really is. They need to find a way to get over the line. And it's not going to be easy against City. So... It's not Other an easy, yeah. It's not an easy situation Tottenham in at the moment, is it? With Jose no. Mourinho, and you know, and it's not even an elephant in the room anymore. Everyone's talking about, and with Harry Kane, it's a difficult one to manoeuvre through this, isn't it, for Tottenham? It is. Um, from a Daniel Levy's point of view, uh, it's almost like he's going to be forced into a double down type situation. Uh, whether that's Mourinho or not. His key job this summer is to keep Harry Kane. And, you know, I've been at the club with Dan. He's not going to be forced into selling anybody. You know, he, he held on as long as he could with Berbatov. He kept Bale and Modric at the season probably a year, maybe two years longer than they, than he, than they wanted to be. Um, but this Harry Kane scenario is not going away. He, he deserves better, I think, is the honest opinion of most Tottenham fans. And the only way to... I suppose, appease Harry Kane's needs is to bring players to the football club that that he believes will give him the best chance of getting into the Champions League next year and winning a trophy. 
I think defensively they need a, a bit of an upheaval. And then the big, big question is Jose. That's the biggest question of all. You know, does he believe that Jose is the man moving forward? I, I, it's a hard one to call because he could end up winning, you know, this, this trophy and it could change things. It could change the dynamic of our people feel, but there's no doubt. I feel he's lost a few players this year and the impact of that for next season uh, it's, it's tough. It's tough for Daniel to make that decision. It seems he's if he has lost them, it seems to have happened very quickly, doesn't it? This is the bit I can't quite get my head around. You go back to the autumn beating Arsenal, which is obviously a, a key result for Tottenham fans, if not players. Go top of the league, you think, oh, I could see the way Tottenham are playing. I could see something about them. This seems such a such a roller coaster. This Tottenham season, doesn't it? Up down, up down. I think one thing we spoke about earlier with the old school managers is trust and. Jose doesn't trust his players and they don't trust him. And that's a big problem because he's always had players in, in, it seems he's done well. He's had players that will go to war for him. And he now has a group of players that I'm not saying they don't want to go to war for him, but I feel like they have, they have broken his trust by lack of performances at times and not probably showing that grit and determination that he wants in moments because they've, um, what are they, third in the table in terms of losing from winning positions? It's something ridiculous like that. Um, so there's no trust there. And then on the player's side of things, it's like, well, who's getting dropped this week? Who's getting hung out to dry in the press this week? You know, Deli Alley's had a whole season of it, season of it. Eric Dyer's, you know, been on the, the conveyor belt of in and out. You know, there's, there's a long list. If you're not Hoybier this season and Dombele, Kane or Son, the rest are just, you know, it's a mismatch. So... I, that's where there's been a big failure. You know, I think that side of things is if it, if he does lose his job in the end, will be the, the big breakdown. Harry Kane's obviously got the summer to look forward to. Let's just talk about your, your England experiences before we talk about the, the Euros. How do you reflect on your England career? Um, there's no doubt that this, there's a lot of regret within it. Um, you know, as an honest opinion, I think that we were looking at an era of English football where we had some of the best sentiment fielders in, in British football history. Um, could we have made it work better? Um, was there an element of, you know, I look at certain teams from the best teams that have ever played and there's always um, a bit of a foil to, you know, the glamour. So if there's a, I don't know, a, a Gerard and a Lampard in there, did we need a Beckham? Did we need a, you know, I'm not saying they're not top players, but they need, did they need somebody in there that did, a, did something different? Whether that was, me, Scott Parker, Michael Carrick, because we were kind of, I mean, me and Michael Carrick mainly, I would say, were the, the, the two that were always kind of sat there watching from the sidelines. Um, and then I think later Scott Parker came into it. But, you know, I think even for somebody like Carrick to sit and be only sat with probably, what, 30-odd caps for his country tells you the stories as to how difficult it was. I mean, I ended up with 21 which I'm proud of. But I think there was a key moment in 2008 when we won the League Cup, Capello comes in and I kind of get wind that he likes me as a player. And I'm like, right, brilliant. Um, we go to training, I'm flying. He tells me I'm starting, which didn't happen very often. So I thought, great, you know, I've got a manager here who's backing me. And also he played me in a position where I was just off Wayne Rooney, basically. So we had Gareth Barry, Gerard sat and he just said to me, he just kept saying, go, just do what you're doing, you're doing for Tottenham and one day Ramos get forward, score me a goal. Play against Switzerland, played really well, get forward, score a goal. Um, the second half played really well. And then there, we had France next in the Stade de France, um, which so obviously went back to our clubs. 
And I had, a, I had a bit of an ankle problem. And one day Ramos pulled me and said, listen, we've won the League Cup. So we're in Europe already. Um, your ankle's a bit of a mess. So let's manage that throughout the season. But I want you to, you know, keep playing for England. So let's get you ready for the England games. You know, that will take your career forward. And I was like, brilliant. Uh, that, that sounds great to me. So then the next England squad comes for the, the France game. And I'm not in it. And I'm like, I'd missed the game for Spurs the week before on the basis that I'm being rested for England games. And then all of a sudden, I'm not in the England squad. I've scored the, the, the game before. And then Capello comes out basically saying, if you're not playing for your club, then you can't play for your country. And that's when that whole thing started. So the minute he did that, I just thought, here we go again, me in England, just, just as I'm getting started, the rug gets pulled from uh, underneath me. And I think the next time we met, um, we had Brazil and Qatar and we had a bit of a falling out at half time. I didn't really agree with what he was asking us. It was very much just camp in and survive, which we had better players to do that. And we had a bit of an, an argument at half time. It wasn't much of an argument. It was just, I didn't agree with what he said. And that was my last game in an England shirt, essentially. So it was a shame, you know, because I felt that that moment, you know, the minute I scored that goal for Switzerland, I thought I've got a role here. You know, my clone was on the bench, you know, I'm, and I'm playing just behind Wayne Rooney. And it was like, wow, this is, you know, this, this is something that could be the start for me going into a major tournament at the World Cup in 2010. And then like that, within a, an instant, it was taken away on the basis of miscommunication, probably. I, I think for a lot of us around that era, if we don't say we have some regret, then we'd be lying. And it's bundled out. Close call for Switzerland. Perhaps if Rooney wasn't obstructed by all that facial hair, he would have gotten to it. On 40 minutes more from the three Lions, Cole, far side, fancy foot, Stephen Licksteiner cross, popped in by Jermaine Genus. And it is 1-0 to England. Genus and Capello celebrating their first goals with the side. Well, certainly interviewing you a lot over the years. I mean, there was a there was a um, a photograph on Twitter the other day of the quarterfinal team in Portugal, Euro 2004. And I went... Blimey, I'm a literally world classes, but, but I mean, I'm a, a fantastic team. I mean, seriously. And you thought, how did that team not win? Do you think, looking from the outside now, that this team has a better feel about it? The whole golden generation, you know, Chelsea. I think there probably was a Chelsea man, you think, to be honest, in the 2010s. Oh, there definitely was. Definitely. There definitely yeah. was. Let's, yeah, let's not I pretend mean, otherwise. We weren't massively together as a group. I wouldn't, you know, I don't think it was even encouraged by anyone really that we were that together, which was weird. They seem to be more now, don't they? I think so. Yeah, I mean, I think Gareth's done a really good job of that. You know, I think that Gareth's understanding of being with England, you know, at every level, whether he was starting, whether he was on the bench, or being at a major tournament, is is very vast. It's vast, so he gets what every player in the team needs. Um, I feel like they're a good group that, that enjoy meeting up with England and want to do the right things. My only fear is just the way we play sometimes, the, the style that we, that we implement. But, you know, Gareth's not there to entertain anybody. He's there to win a trophy. And that's what people need to remember sometimes. And I think if we watch Portugal in the last European Championships, some of their games were horrible to watch. The whole European Championships weren't that pretty, if you remember, Pugas. But they got the job done. And essentially, that's all anybody remembers. So if he does that, then, you know, he'd be a great England manager. I've got two more for you, one on England and one on, on the FA Cup. Are you, I am, but I'm a Sunday morning footballer, are you taking Jude Bellingham to the Euros? 
Oh, 100%. Yeah. Good. It's not even I'm a question. Glad, I'm glad it's you said a, that. Yeah. No, it's not even a question, Pooch, because also, you know, th- that, that there, I think, is where, from a tactical point of view, it's make or break. Like, I, I love Calvin Phillips and I love Declan Rice. They don't work together. So I don't know what it is. You know, I, I watch Calvin Phillips on a week-in, week-out basis. He likes to play on his own as the deepest line midfield player. And I've played that role and you like the space. It's like when I, when I speak to Gary Lineker about strikers these days, and he, he'll always, you know, he, he loves like love to play with Beardsley. Yeah, yeah, he's miles away. And he'll away. say the real, <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's like, you know what, people think that, he said, I used to hate it when people flooded the box because that's my space. I want the space. So just stay away and let me do what I want to do. And it's the same for that pivot in midfield. You don't want to kind of think, right, I'm going to drift away, go and get the ball and turn around and Declan Rice is there. You just want to go, go away. I want, I want this space. And I think Bellingham... I mean, he plays in a three at Dortmund. He understands the role. He gets forward. He gets back. He's fearless. Uh, should he start? I don't know. You know, you know, potentially I would start him. Uh, but there's no doubt he's in my squad. No doubt. I'm glad you said that because a lot of people go, well, he'll be better for the experience. And I always say, life is not a dress rehearsal. You do not know what's going to happen. He may get a terrible injury. He may be appallingly out of form. He may get a move which doesn't work out for him. He may look completely different. It's happened to loads of players. Of it has. Lo- loads. Yeah. It's happened to loads. We'll take them from experience. And then it's like, well, what do you mean? You know, they make, and also, I think the one thing with this group of players are they any better from their experiences? I don't know. You know, they've had decent. They've had a terrible campaign, uh, obviously in France, and then you know the World Cup after that was better, but they didn't play brilliantly. You know, they, they they got through and did what they needed to do. But you know, experiences are what they are. You got to go and live them. You know, it's not about just watching from afar. So my final one is, obviously, you've got a Tottenham hat on and a Tottenham um, input into this one. But I wouldn't put it past Man City to win it all. I really wouldn't, would you? No, definitely not. You know what? I did the game last night uh, for BT, uh, the, the game against Dortmund. And they sh- they, they've grown. They've grown as a team. They've grown within their experiences of getting knocked out in quarterfinals. Um, their calmness in that game was, was very apparent. And... This is their week now, isn't it, obviously? So they've got through that big one there. This semi-final they've got against Chelsea is massive. And I think you'll make changes because he's got to freshen it up, obviously. But the one thing with City, they freshen it up with the likes of, you know, Sterling, Gabriel Jesus coming into the team. You know, he's, he's not weakening the side too much. So um, I, I don't think I've ever seen a team that I have got a lot of faith in the fact they could do the quadruple as much as this team. But as we saw with United when they won the treble, the oh god, the, the ball has the, to bounce your way. Oh my word! Does it have to bounce your way? It, it's not going to be simple, and they're going to have their moment. Whether that is going to be, you know, a last-minute winner, a penalty that they've got to score, they're going to have their moment throughout this last little period here. And it's just whether they take it or not. Oli sticks it in the top corner to win them the Champions League. I think there's a well. Burkamp missed the penalty. The yeah, Burkamp missed the penalty, which would have been Burkamp misses the yeah. penalty. Giggs goes down yeah. the other end. Those little moments have to fall in line for a quadruple or a treble to happen. So, you know, I, I hope they do it. I really do. I, I like to see it in my lifetime, but I, I just think it's a big ask. It's a big ask. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the Acast Creative Network.